Well, we are in Psalm 11 today. You know, we just finished a big um, series going through Genesis 1 through 4, and that took a long time. And it's our custom in between other, you know, sections of scripture between sermon series, which are usually just going through a section of scripture. When we finish one, we go to the Psalms and pick up where we left off. So we're in Psalm 11 today, and we're going to be in the Psalms for a few weeks, and then um, then we'll go to another big section of scripture. But until then, Psalm 11, 12, 13, however long we camp out here. So if you would, turn to Psalm 11 in your worship guide, and uh, we'll read it together. It's okay if I turn this down just a little bit. All right, now I can talk a little bit easier. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 11, for the director of music of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bends their bows and they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright of heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on the earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous. But the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. Scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you that you give us uh, in the Psalms, like you have here, real, unfiltered, powerful language for our prayers, for our worship, for our encouragement. Lord, there's so much that we can learn here about you and from you, and I, and I pray that we would. Would you open up our hearts, ears, imaginations. I pray that we would hear the message that you are speaking to us in this psalm. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and that we would be changed to be more like Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Okay. All right, Psalm 11. Psalm 11, just a few things about it. We, uh, first of all, it is the little title for the director of music of David. As we've been studying the Psalms, we've learned that these little titles tell us a lot. 
for the director of music, that means that this was written and it was designed for us to sing together. It's a singing song. Now, uh, every psalm is good for singing. That's um, Christians and Jews have sung the psalms for years. Every psalm is good for singing. But 55 of them were specifically written and designed to be sung together in corporate worship. And those 55 we see have a little title for the choir master. That's kind of like saying uh, to the church's worship leader. Um, so that's this psalm. Now, that cues us off a little bit on how to read it. Congregational singing psalms are meant to be uh, internalized by repetition. We learn something from them, not just by reading them, but by their design, by taking them into ourselves, uh, sort of with our uh, feelings filter lifted, because that's what music does. It, it gets not just into your brain, it gets into your feelings. So we see in this psalm, we see it has uh, some strong imagery, strong language. And that's part of its musical design. So it's a singing psalm for congregations. I regret that we are not singing it together today. Normally when we have a psalm that we're preaching, we sing it. Uh, today that didn't happen because we did Psalm 56 instead. But next time. Um, so singing psalm. Next, it's of David. King David wrote this. Now, King David is a complex character in the Bible. He did some really good things, and he did some really bad things. He is very, very, very human. But when we read psalms that are attributed to David, we should, uh, that again, changes the way we read it. David was the shepherd king. He was uh, sort of a, you know, a blue-collar, relatable, but the king of Israel. Lots of people were able to relate to David, but also he was the shepherd king. He sort of, he wasn't just like the the guy in charge of the government. He had a spiritual, um, he, he was kind of like a pastor to the people. God had called him to shepherd the people, not just in government, but also spiritually. So he wrote this uh, as, as a way to pastor the people. So that affects the way that we read it. So, we put those two things together, and then we look at the content. The content of Psalm 11 is all about crisis. If you remember back from last time we were in the Psalms, this should be super familiar, because Psalm 9, Psalm 10, and Psalm 11 are all like this. They're crisis psalms. Uh, they are about crises, and they are for you in your crisis. It's They're designed to get in your memory, uh, in your heart. And when crisis hits in life, you reach for this. This is the song that you sing. That's what it was designed for. Now, that's fairly uh, convenient because crises are a universal human experience. Everybody goes through them. You guys have heard me say, uh, if you've hung around here for a while, you've heard me say something that my dad always says, which is, uh, you either are in a crisis right now, or you just went through one, or you're about to go through one. And I think that that's very true. Life is filled with crises. Um, uh, cars crash, flat tires happen, people get COVID, 
our bodies give way, uh, you know, babies get messy diapers at inconvenient times, uh, dishware breaks when we're trying to clean them. Everything from little crises, like you forgot to prep the coffee and, and the dog used the bathroom on the floor uh, in the morning, or big crises like you get a call from the doctor and you have a major diagnosis, or maybe even sometimes worse, you're not getting a diagnosis. You're just struggling with sickness, and it's very frustrating. Small to big, we all go through them. So Psalm 11, what does Psalm 11 have to teach us about crisis? What is it that David, as a shepherd king, God's people, wanted us to get internalized into our brains, into our imaginations, into our feelings, so that when crisis hits, not just our knowledge, but our whole heart cries out? What is it that Psalm 11 has? That's the question for today. What is Psalm 11's message for us about crisis? And here it is. I'll give you right on the front end, just in case you have a short attention span like me. Here it is. Um, Psalm 11 teaches us that when crisis hits, you can either respond out of fear or respond out of taking refuge in God. That's the message of Psalm 11. There's crisis hits. There's two ways to respond. There's the weak, the fear way, and then there's the taking refuge in God way. Now, obviously, life is complicated, and there's lots of ways that we respond to crises. But this is a poem. This is supposed to teach us something. And even though when crisis hits, there's all kinds of things that we could do that maybe we would not characterize as either fearful or taking refuge in God. Here in this psalm, David creates a dichotomy. It's an either or. And he's trying to teach us something about the nature of ultimate reality. When crisis hits, which reality are you holding on to? Are you holding on to a reality in which you are a shakable person, where you are subject to your circumstances, and therefore you should be afraid because you're not in control of your circumstances? Or when crisis hits, does your anchor go deep enough that you are not swept away with the current crisis? That's the message of the song. Crisis has two ways to respond. Let me just show you uh, from the text. Now, I love the way that this is written because there's a conversation involved here, but we only hear one side of the conversation. It's almost like hearing, overhearing somebody on the phone. You only hear one side of it. So let me show you how the conversation, how the story of the psalm plays out, because it's easy to miss if we read it once through. It starts off like this. In the Lord, I take refuge. Okay, so we already know that the psalmist has chosen the take refuge in God path, right? In the Lord, I take refuge. How then can you say to me, okay, so the psalmist is talking to somebody, and that somebody just said something to them, and it's almost offensive. Have you ever heard somebody, maybe you've said to someone else, how can you say that to me? That's that's like a that's deflection. So whatever this person said, it's basically offensive to the psalmist. I'm taking refuge in the Lord. So how can you say to me? And then he repeats the thing that the person said, which is this. 
Flee like a bird to your mountain. For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Okay, so thus far what we have, somebody came to David, the psalmist. Whether that was David personally, probably not. He's writing member for the congregation. So somebody comes to the singer, if you will. And as singers, we kind of put ourselves in that in that spot. So somebody comes to you and they say this. Flee like a bird to your mountain. Run away to the place where you feel safe. Look, the wicked. And then there's like this slow motion narration. They bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings. It's supposed to raise tension in us. They shoot from the shadows. These are cowardly foes or maybe snipers of some kind. And they're doing it at the upright in heart. Run away because righteous people are being persecuted by slow motion sniper bow and arrows from cowardly people. Run for your life. Go to the mountain. Go to the place where you feel safe. And then the person ends with, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? That last line is a little melodramatic. It's supposed to be. This is the voice of panic. This is the voice of fear. Something has happened. We don't know what it is. Maybe David was reflecting on a time where there were enemies at the gates of the city. Maybe he was reflecting on the time that his son Absalom tried to overflow, overthrow and steal the kingdom. Maybe he was reflecting back on when he was running from Saul. We don't know. In fact, we're supposed to read this and think about our own crisis. Have you ever been in a situation where a person or maybe just your internal voice of fear says to you something like, oh, you are in trouble. You better run. Uh, everybody hates you because you're a good person, so you need to go hide out and wherever you feel safe. That's what's happening. And then David says, how can you say that to me? I'm taking refuge in the Lord. Do you see it? You see the dichotomy? Something's happened. The voice of fear uh, comes out and says to you, run. Uh, The mountain thing. David was a shepherd, right? Shepherd king. He knows the mountains. Remember, he spent years in the mountains running from King Saul when Saul was chasing him around the wilderness. Run to your mountain. Go to the place where you feel secure because the wicked, who are the wicked? Uh, We we don't know. Whoever you think is against you or whoever actually is, they're coming after you. And they are bending their bows. They set the arrow. They're shooting from the shadows. Feel the tension rising. And now panic. And the foundations are destroyed. What are you going to do? Everything's falling apart. This is something when crisis hits, whether it's small, like forgetting to prep the coffee and spilling milk, or big, uh, diagnosis, friend, family, passes, something like that. Uh, lose your job, that kind of stuff. Big or small, when crisis hits, there is always, at least for every single person that I know, there's always some kind of internal or external voice that says in that moment, you don't have what it takes to handle this. 
you better run. You better go on the defense. Uh, it's, this is not, this is gonna get a lot worse for you. Do, do you relate to that? I do. For me, this is an internal voice. Uh, and it's a voice of fear. I feel that. But David's response is, how can you say that? That's ridiculous. And the reason why that little voice of fear is so ridiculous, so out there, how can you even say that? It's because David is taking refuge in the Lord. He is, he is anchored into a deeper reality than the sweeping current of fear. Do you see it? So that's sort of the main kernel of big idea in the psalm. David is illustrating dramatically through poetic musical arrangement. Crisis hits, this is what happens. You can go with the voice of fear, or you can say no to fear and take refuge in the Lord. Now, that's good, and it's beautiful, and I think it's something that we can all relate to. Uh, But at this point in the psalm, it's sort of like... um, Uh, it's sort of like, it's sort of like if you go out to eat and you pull into a parking lot and, or when you, when you come out of the restaurant after you ate and you walk by and right next to your car is some like beautiful, brand new or classic, you know, collectible sports car that's in pristine condition. And you walk by and you go, wow, that is awesome. Not for me though. When you get in your car and you drive away, right? It's sort of like, at this point in the psalm, it's like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, yeah, I see that. Uh, you know, I wish I could be the person that says no to fear and takes refuge in God, but I don't really know how to do that. And my crisis, my crises that I go through are not metaphorical, ideal land stuff. It's real life stuff. Sort of like I would walk by the nice car and go, I'd love to have that, but I have real bills. Uh, I can't afford it. And in fact, I can't even drive at night. Uh, that's not nice, but not for me. Um, you, you feel it? So in the Psalm, crisis, fear, or refuge in God. Sure, we could take refuge in God. I don't really know. You feel that? Okay, that's why the big idea, the whole big message is in the first half. And we have a whole second half of the Psalm. This whole second half of the psalm is written in order to explain to us how to actually do it, how to actually take refuge in God, how to actually say no to the voice of fear and navigate the crisis with an anchor deeper than the current of panic and fear. The rest of it is a how-to. So in the time we have left, which is about... Uh, 15 minutes, uh, I want to show you from the rest of the psalm how this actually works. What it is that we are supposed to do in order to take refuge in God. Take refuge in God sounds like a beautiful thing. It sounds like a beautiful religious thing that I wish we could all do. But when when your adrenaline's pumping, when you're frustrated, when you're mad, when crisis hits, when you're having a panic attack, uh, we need to know Something a little more, uh, at least for me, I want to know steps. I, I, I want to know something memorable and concrete. What do I do to take refuge in God? So that's the rest of the psalm.
I, I love that the, it, you know, what can the righteous do? The voice of fear says almost mockingly. And it's like David says right before verse four, there could be a little verse that says, well, I'll tell you what the righteous should do. So he, here it is. Here's the how to part. He shows us what to do. He says this, starting with verse four. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and the upright will see his face. Okay? How do we do it? How do we take refuge in the Lord? Well, first, let's talk about refuge. What What is David talking about? What is taking refuge? If you're reading from the King James Bible or something like that, you know, some old uh, classic translation, American Standard Version or the Revised Standard Version, the first verse doesn't say, in the Lord I take refuge. It says, in the Lord I trust. And that's because in Hebrew Bible land, uh, taking refuge and trusting are equivalent things. Trusting is what you're actually doing. Taking refuge is the image that describes it. So the Hebrew word that we would translate to take refuge or to trust is a word I don't know how to technically pronounce, so I will not try to do it in front of you. I will just tell you what it means. It means... Uh, it, it's, it's, it's an image. It's the image that you're outside and it starts pouring rain and you run under the cover of something, a building or a, many of us have had this experience. You're out, you're out walking, something happens, clap of thunder, it's pouring rain. What do you look for? You look for an overhang or an awning or maybe if you're on one of a million movies where this happens, you look for a cave or something like that, right? That Going to be covered by something, that in Hebrew, the word that describes it is the word that translates take refuge or trust. So when David says, I take refuge in the Lord, he's saying, in the crisis, I'm running to go under the covering of the Lord. So the thing that we do, if you want to take refuge in the Lord, you metaphorically run to put yourself under something. You put something in between you and the crisis. Well, what is that thing? Well, we have three things about God that we see in this that we take refuge under. Three truths about God that we go to put in between us and the fear, us and the crisis. The first one is this. God is sovereign. That's David's first thing. When voice of fear comes, you say no to fear by taking refuge in God. What does that mean? It means taking a hold of, getting under the truth that God is sovereign. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on the earth and his eyes examine them. David is saying, God is sovereign. Now, what does sovereign mean? It means that God is powerful. It means he has all the power. It means that God is in control. It means he's actually using that power. And it means that God is aware. He knows what's going on. That's what sovereignty is. The reason we call kings and queens sovereigns is because they're people who are supposed to have 
power. There are people who are supposed to govern. They have some sort of control. And there are people who are supposed to be aware of what's going on in the kingdom. So God is sovereign. The Lord is in his holy temple. He's actually being God right now. He is powerful. He is in the temple. He's not off on a vacation somewhere. He's not just a God in your imagination. Somewhere in ultimate reality, he is He is doing God things. He has great power. And he is on his heavenly throne. He's actually governing. He's actually in control. He is in the driver's seat. We don't need to sing, Jesus, take the wheel, because he already has it. Okay? He is powerful. He is in control. And then he observes everyone on the earth. He examines them. He sees what's going on. The psalmist tells us, To say no to fear, take refuge in God. What does that mean? Put yourself under the truth that he is sovereign. Tell yourself, remind yourself, maybe even say it out loud. In this moment, God is powerful. He is more powerful than this crisis, more powerful than my pumping adrenaline, more powerful than my circumstances. God is in control. He didn't just know this was coming somehow. He is, he is in control of this whole thing. Life feels out of control, but he is not. And then he's aware. He sees this. He's watching this. And when we take a hold of those truths, speak them out loud to ourselves, tell ourselves those things. We are like, we're like putting them as an umbrella in between us and the fear that's raining down on our heads in whatever crisis you're in. So David says, teaches us how to rehearse, maybe even like the song, sing, God is sovereign. Now, anybody who believes in any God could say that God is, whoever their God is, that God is sovereign, that their God is powerful and in control and sees what's going on. But only the God that we read about in this book demonstrated his power, his control, and his awareness by becoming one of us and living under the same kinds of crises that we live under, even to the point of being totally overwhelmed by it, by crisis and death on a cross, and then raising from the dead to ascend to the heavens and rule. We see in Jesus, in his life story, the kind of sovereignty that our God holds. He is in his temple. And he doesn't just sit in his temple as some ethereal being we don't understand. He sits there as a human being, fully God and fully man, one that we can relate to. He's powerful. He rose from the dead. He did something that none of us could ever do. And he's aware He knows what it's like to be a human being. He's with us as we gather together. So crisis hits. You can say yes to fear all the way until your foundations are destroyed. Or you can take refuge in God. What does that mean? Taking a hold of the truth that God is sovereign. Next. God is good. Verse 5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. This is a really difficult verse. 
it's really difficult because if we just take it uh, hard, literally, then it conflicts with the message of the rest of this book. If we just take it like face value, literal, wooden, God hates with a passion the wicked and those who love violence, then we're all we're all done for. There's no point in doing any more of this because we're all we all love violence on some level. We all have wickedness in our hearts. So and also it says in this book, we read all about how God is love, right? How we read over and over again. Actually, in 1 John, it says God is love twice. 1 John 4, 8 and 1 John 4, 16. Love is in his very being. We read a second ago, John 3, 16. This is how God loved the world. The whole world, the wicked world. God loved in such a way that he sent his son uh, in order to give his life so people wouldn't have to perish. So how does how does it work that the psalmist writes that God hates the wicked with passion, but the rest of the book tells us that God is love? How does that work? Well, it works like this. First of all, this is a poem. And it's not just supposed to speak to our brains. It speaks with images to our feelings. Here's here's the second thing. We have to read this as being this truth that God hates the wicked, as being friends with the truth that God is love, not conflict with. And the way that works out is this. When the psalmist writes... The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. What he is saying is that God gets no pleasure from wickedness. There is no place for wickedness in his heart. The word examines. God examines the righteous, but hates the wicked. The word examines, if you go back to the Hebrew, what we get in the Hebrew is a blacksmithing term. It's a term for when the blacksmith, you know, who melts down the metal and hammers it and purifies it. uh, That word examines is is a word for testing. Like he's hitting with a hammer. He's testing the metal. He's making sure it has no impurities in it. The Lord examines the righteous. He works with the righteous. He is uh, he's tracking with them. He's forming them. But he hates the wicked. Blacksmiths. As long as the metal's being purified and working with it. But if they come up with a piece of metal that is just all impurities, they call it dross. They melt it down and they throw it into the fire. They don't use it. There's no use for it. So what the psalmist is doing is for righteous people, God is working with them. He's examining them because he's good. God, the good God works with goodness. But with, but with wickedness, he has no place for it. He throws it into the fire. In fact, he turns away from it to the point he has no quarter, no harboring for it to the point we can even say poetically he hates the wicked. He turns away from them. What the psalmist is saying is that God is way more good than you would ever think. I don't know about you, but I, I have this thing in my mind it's that when life gets hard i find myself believing that god gets some kind of sick pleasure when i suffer do you guys have that somewhere deep inside i got the idea 
that God enjoys sadistically to see me hurt. I don't think I'm the only one who feels this. When life gets hard, you think, oh, man, somewhere up there, God's just, he, I bet he gets a kick out of this, doesn't he? The psalmist is saying he hates that stuff. He hates it when you suffer. He hates the fact that violence is ravaging our world. He gets no pleasure from this. He throws that stuff into the fire. People who are committed to wickedness in their being, there's no room in God's presence. The psalmist is saying that God is way more good than you have ever thought. So when crisis hits, when you're overcome with sickness, with death, debt, addiction, you name it, and fear comes knocking, you can tell yourself, remind yourself that the God who is sovereign, he's totally in control. He has all the power. He knows what's going on. He is actually good. And that gives me great hope. And I hope it gives you hope. There's that whole thing that says, since the world is broken, since we have wickedness, God is either all powerful and not all good, or he's all good, but all, but not all powerful. Have you heard that? That's ridiculous. He is all powerful and he's all good. And that is something that we put over our heads to shield ourselves from the fear that will drive us crazy in a crisis. How do we know that he's so good? Well, because when he revealed himself to us as one of us, he did it in the person of Jesus Christ. And when we read Jesus's story, we see a picture of ultimate, unfathomable goodness. Goodness that overwhelms wickedness. So we take refuge, reminding ourselves, holding on to God is sovereign, God is good. And the last thing, that God is working. We have this picture of God examining the righteous like a blacksmith, testing, of turning away from wickedness, hating with a passion those who love violence. And then it ends with, the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and the upright will see his face. This is saying, if God is all-powerful, and he's all good, how does wickedness still exist in the world? Well, the, the way is that God is working on it. He is in process. And he's working with you in your crisis. Somebody said whatever, I think it was Nietzsche, said whatever doesn't kill you makes, makes you stronger. And that guy actually committed suicide, which kind of ruins the whole thing. Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Um, but whatever God is doing in your life, whether it kills you or not, brings you closer to him if you are in Christ. He's working with you. He is working on it. And he loves justice. He's not going to go about his life in our life letting injustice run unchecked in the world. He's dealing with it. And it ends with the upright, that's the righteous person, will see his face. We read in 2 Corinthians that, I'll read it word for word. 
says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has made his light shine in our hearts to give us light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God's glory is displayed in the face of Christ. When it says the upright will see his face, it means the upright will see Jesus. So what we end here, this, the upright will see Jesus, the wicked will not see Jesus. We know because of the gospel, this is not based on our actions. People who do good go to heaven. People who do bad go to hell. That's not it. But what we see here is that God has reached down to a group of people to take their wicked hearts and hammer away in a blacksmithing process to make them more like Christ, their Savior, the one who brings them into God's kingdom in the first place. So that in the end, before his powerful throne, Jesus and us stand together gazing at one another's faces. All right, so let's go back to the beginning to wrap this up. Crisis hits. The voice of fear shows up and says, oh, you don't have what it takes. You better run. Look at how bad it is. Look at how everything is just is just coming apart. The wicked, you know, slow motion, bow and arrow from the shadows. Oh, you better run. You can say in that moment, how can you say that to me? What are you talking about? I take refuge in the Lord. The anchor in my life is so deep in God's sovereignty and God's goodness and in the fact that God is the one working on me that no crisis could ever shake me. And that is available to every single person because it's been given to us in Jesus. Who in his crisis, walking the hill of Calvary, Dropped his anchor in God's sovereignty, God's goodness, and God's process. And we see that he rose from the dead and ascended as the first of many brothers and sisters. Let's pray.